The inflation target is, pardon my French, bullshit. And it's supposed to be. It, it reinforces the idea that the Federal Reserve is a central bank, and therefore it is targeting inflation, it is responsible for inflation, but it simply reinforces what the Federal Reserve actually does, which is try to manipulate opinions and, and emotions. Hello there, how are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for those people living in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. You can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And you can earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BLOCKFI.com. Next up is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Yan, Brady and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference along with my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun, with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge. They are inviting the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and from mining to lightning. Whether you want to attend or sponsor the event, you can find out more at pacificbitcoin.la, which is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N dot L-A. Next up, it is Ledger, and the world's most popular wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. With a larger screen, it is now easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same level of high security as all other Ledger products. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Morning, Jeff. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on the show. You've come highly recommended by a couple of people. Danny... Is probably uh, more excited about this show than any other we're making in this set of shows we're making over the next two weeks. Uh, I'm looking forward to it because I think I'm going to learn a lot, but also uh, potentially everything I've been talking to people about recently, certainly Bitcoiners, you may have a contrarian perspective on it. Well, that's true pretty much everywhere I go, so <laughs> that's, that's the common theme. So either you're right and everyone's wrong. Or you're just wrong. Yeah, and that's sort of the arrogant conceit, right? The 
But then again, I think, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I think that uh, the, the evidence is extraordinary and shows that uh, the worldview or the, the uh, framework that I'm working under seems to be what's happening and what, what, what continues to happen uh, all the time. And we are in very strange times. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I can't help but be nervous, uh, if not slightly scared, about what's going to happen over the next year, few years, decade. I'm a parent as well, so I worry about the future of my children. Um, every day I look at the news and I seem to see more crazy stuff, whether it's to do with war, the economy, supply chains, energy prices. There's a lot of crazy shit happening all at once. And uh, I'm hoping we're going to dig into some of this today anyway with you. Um, I should, what we should do though, my audience might not know you so well. So I know some people do, but let's, uh, we don't normally do this, but let's do a dig into your background. Just explain to everyone who you are, what it is you do, and, and your background that's going to make it uh, relevant to this conversation. Well, I'm, my name is Jeff Snyder. I work for a company recently, uh, switched companies called Atlas Financial. So basically, I'm a, uh, I used to be a portfolio manager. I work in the financial services industry, managing money for retail clients and things like that. I also do a lot of research into the background, macroeconomics, uh, monetary mechanics is really my specialty, digging into the history, the, uh, the plumbing, so to speak, of how the monetary system actually works, what it is the Federal Reserve or other central banks actually do, the fact that they may not actually be central banks, which is shocking for most people to hear. So basically, you know, for the last quarter century, trying to figure out what is money and how does it work and how does it all fit together with finance and the economy. Well, the, the question of what is money is a super important question because us as Bitcoiners, we believe Bitcoin is money, which right. I don't think you do. Um, no, not yet. I not mean, yet. it's possible, but we're not. I don't think we're quite there yet. No, we're not quite there yet. But uh, there is a lot of discussion about what is money. Uh, a lot of people within our sector uh, go back and talk about rice stones and glass pearls and salt and moving eventually onto gold and then paper money and then uh, ultimately leading us to Bitcoin. But You've studied it yourself. Do you have a good answer for what is money? No, I actually don't. Okay. And that's, I think that's the general problem. Um, even the Federal Reserve or central banks, economists, uh, they can't define money either. Because I think we took a step in, the, uh, in the, another direction that most people aren't really aware of. Even in the, in the progression that you just sat down and went through. You know, went through tokens mm. and then paper money, then gold, and then, you know, the gold and paper money. Well... That isn't quite what happened. Um, I think the, the general mistake about what happened in, in the Great Depression, starting there, uh, Executive Order 6102, everybody knows, especially in Bitcoin community, yep. FDR confiscated gold. And supposedly from there, we went from a sort of quasi-private money standard to a government money standard. And that's where the paper money fiat currency narrative comes in. But that's not exactly what happened. In the Great Depression, before the Great Depression, we actually had a ledger money standard that was developed in the banking system. So you had commodity money of gold coins that people could own and use as property, but you also had fractional reserve lending, which created this depository ledger type money. And even in the early 20th century, the ledger money had become the primary source of monetary exchange. Hand-to-hand -hand currency had already started dying out in the early 20th century. So we had this quasi-hybrid where we had commodity money and more and more bank money, this ledger money stuff. And when FDR came along with 6102, he confiscated the private coins, the private money, 
but left mostly this other bank, bank-centered um, ledger money system. And it wasn't exactly replaced by Federal Reserve notes because, as I said, hand-to-hand currency in most commercial, especially financial transactions, had pretty much dried up. So after, during the Great Depression and afterwards, it wasn't a government standard money anymore. It was a bank standard money. And as we developed in the post-war era under Bretton Woods, closer integration across the economies, this bank standard money went nuclear. So it became something that we uh, called the euro dollar system, which is kind of what everybody associates my name with, is studying this euro dollar system as it developed from, say, the 1950s forward, which essentially took this bank money standard, this ledger money standard, to its, you know, its, its nth degree. Because in the euro dollar system, there isn't even physical currency or gold or anything. It's strictly virtual. It's strictly ledger. Um, as you know, Bitcoiners and digital currency enthusiasts will understand distributed ledger technology. That's not something new. That's been used for decades now in this euro dollar system. So as it, we moved out of the Great Depression from a hybrid system to more exclusively this ledger bank money system, the government was kind of set aside there because in many ways, governments were just happy to let the banks do this outside the United States because it solved a very real problem for them, which is known as Triffin's Paradox or Triffin's Dilemma. So the Eurodollar system created this parallel or even superseding monetary system of its own rules, its own design, its own uh, experimentation. And by the time you get to something like the Great Inflation, we couldn't even define money anymore because banks in the system had decades to basically experiment on different forms of transactions. And it became impossible uh, for regulators and government authorities to even keep track of. And most of them just said, we give up. We can't even do this anymore. So in the 70s and early 80s, central banks stopped being central banks and stopped being monetary agents entirely and just said, we'll leave this to the banking system because it seems to be working very well. Once you get past the great inflation stuff, you get into the 80s and 90s, it's like, this seems to be working. We've got globalization, we've got economic growth, we've got prosperity around the world. So we don't even need to define money. We don't even need to, we don't even need to care about money. Um, economics as a whole just dropped monetary scholarship entirely from the 80s on forward and just kind of fingers crossed and hoped it all, walk, all worked out, which, you know, obviously we get to 2007, 2008. Something went wrong there. Right. Well, we're going to come back to 2007, 2008. We're also going to come back to the euro dollar um, because I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what it is. <laughs> and I'm going to need your explanation. Um, but I just want to dig back into this. Uh, so for you... What it, what should money be? What what if you had to define what money should be? What would be good money? What how would you define that? Well, money isn't wealth. Number one, uh-huh. money is a tool, okay. and it should be a commercial tool. It's a basically to allow a modern free market capitalist economy to maximize its advantages because it allows the you know efficiency, allows sustainability, if we are a maximum amount of being able to price things in a, in a stable unit of account, all the kind of things that you're familiar with. So money is a commercial tool to allow economic, uh, economic processes to do what they do best, allow the capital system, capitalist system, free markets to do what they do best, be most efficient, therefore sustainable. So if we start from the premise that money is a commercial tool, I think we're putting it in the right box rather than thinking about it as a financial thing or a, uh, as, as a uh, token of wealth or something like that. Right. But, but what would make good money then? 
a stable system, something that's predictable, transparent, uh, where we all know the rules, we all know the, know what's happening. There aren't information asymmetries. There isn't so much of it that's hidden. It's all right. It's all right there, invisible. That's what made commodity money the best uh, previous form of money because everybody understood it was property. It was, um, you know, it was transparent. I give you a coin. We have a transaction. We don't need to define what's going on. Um, so it's it's something that's predictable, stable, and transparent, and easy to understand. Which you've kind of, I said I would try and avoid doing this because uh, it's not entirely your world, but uh, you've kind of described, I think, two forms of money, really. You've described gold and Bitcoin. Yeah, Who, <laughs> I know, kind of walked right <laughs> into yeah, that. Yeah, you did, but, you know, when you, because there's this thing, it's like, why people talk about, why is Bitcoin so good? Well, it's transparent because the ledger's public. Yes. Um, it's, uh, um, what, were the, what were the things you just listed? Predictability, stability, yeah, and 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 similar properties that gold has. And I guess when you move into the era of paper money, which can be controlled by other forces, which uh, which themselves aren't transparent, then this is where you get into issues. So that's quite interesting that you've done that. I wonder is is there a way to advance beyond gold but not get to Bitcoin and still have good money? Sure, and I think the downside of Bitcoin isn't so much that the transparency in the move. Transparency and the uh, the rules of the game being well known, the lack of information asymmetry are huge, huge step forward, huge steps in the right direction. Where I think it goes wrong is that it shares the same liabilities that some other systems have, including the gold system, which led us to Triffin's paradox, which gave us the euro dollar system to begin with, which is inelasticity. Right. Which is, I know that's a it's an emotional topic and it's been debated to death for generations. The, uh, do we need elastic currency? Do we not need elastic currency? Are there benefits to elasticity? Are there, are there drawbacks to inelasticity? And the answer is it's, it's difficult to say, but hist- history has shown that inelastic currencies always produce some of the worst results. Volatility. Volatility that leads to hoarding, deflation, depression. And so the idea of elasticity, um, not just in an academic sense, in a very real sense, is the idea of a currency system or a monetary system that will allow us to be transparent, predictable, and stable, but also not have that <laughs> devastating downside where we lead to these periodic intermittent deflationary episodes that produces depressions, which is something we're living in right now. We're living with the consequences of an inelastic eurodollar system that, that fell apart 15 years ago, almost exactly 15 years ago, and it has never been fixed. So we have an inelastic system, and we're living in with the consequences. As you mentioned, it's not, a, it's not a coincidence. We started talking about social disorder, political chaos, war, all these other things. Those are the natural results of prolonged stagnation as a product of deflationary money. Right. Okay. So if the properties of good money are predictability, transparency, et cetera, but one of the uh, drawbacks to say gold and Bitcoin is inelasticity, uh, which leads to volatility and hoarding, etc. Which there is evidence that that does happen. Of course, I mean, we literally say it in Bitcoin. We say we hodl. Yeah. Um, how? What? What would then be a perfect money? What's What's the in between? Something that's. I think that's really the. There's. There is a happy medium here where you can't. You know, the euro dollar system took it to the extreme in the other direction where it was overdone, which is exactly the the uh, the um, outcomes that. Bitcoiners and hard money proponents have warned against. You don't want to go too far in the other extreme where you're just making money, you know, creating money out of thin air for nothing and leading to all sorts of, you know, malinvestment, as the Austrian economists say. 
because that's exactly what happened in the 1990s and middle 2000s is that the currency system, the monetary system, went way too far in the other direction. And so that's sort of an argument not for strict currency or fixed-based currency, but somewhere in the middle. Can we have a predictable, stable, transparent currency that is in some ways like Bitcoin, but still elastic enough that it doesn't lead to one extreme or the other? So we're trying to find, you know, find a happy medium here. And, you know, it's easy to talk about in ideal circumstances, mm. and it's very difficult in terms of practice. But I think, at least from a theoretical perspective, that's where we need to be moving toward is a happy medium between, you know, one extreme and the other because both extremes are bad. Well, no, I'm following you. Um, and Danny, I'm going to say something that will be uh, not particularly popular with Bitcoin. It's because 21 million fixed cap, that is an immovable force. That is that is, that is, is one of the fundamental pillars of Bitcoin because Bitcoin, whilst is considered money by some, it's also considered a store of wealth. Uh, if there was a form of Bitcoin which was elastic, therefore there was no incentive to hoard, the incentive would be to use it as that tool right. and hopefully have stable pricing, which I'm going to come back to because I've got a question on that. So if you had uh, a currency like Bitcoin, which was elastic, which allowed uh, uh, people to use it as a tool and not hoard it, then where would you where would you store wealth? You clearly need the tool of money, which allows for the division of labor and the economy to function. But people also want to store the wealth, uh, the earnings, the capital they've made, and you know save for a future. Would you have? Do you need two separate tools? I think so, and I think that's the most elegant solution to split money from its three functions. I think you can combine the medium of exchange with unit account. Those two go together really well. And then store value is really something of a different animal. And I think for a long time, gold filled that role because there really wasn't anything else. But over the last two centuries, we've had financial markets develop, liquid financial markets that have taken on the role of store of value. Now, whether or not they're, you know, whether they're ideal or not is, is a completely separate argument, but that's exactly what's happened. In fact, the euro dollar system the euro dollar itself is strictly medium of exchange and unit of account and almost no store of value. The store of value has been offshored literally to financial markets like bonds and stocks and all sorts of financial products, derivatives and things like that. So there is the case to be made that store of value does not necessarily need to be tied up in a good medium of exchange. And maybe that's sort of the point here is that we should shoot for Let's perfect or at least get as close as we can to an ideal medium of exchange before worrying about store of value. Because in the last 15 years, it's the medium of exchange function that is primary. That's the primary problem here. And let's deal with that before we think about store of value. And I think the, some of that's been mixed up over the last 15 years, misunderstanding the monetary system as it actually is. Yeah, that's quite interesting because people talk about the, uh, the kind of uh, evolution of a form of money, that it, it is a collectible uh, then it is a store of wealth, then it's a, uh, a medium of exchange, then it's a unit of account. I can't remember, is that the exact order? Have I got the order right? It's something like that. But you're actually saying let's separate, separate yeah. uh, medium of exchange Re- from... Not even se- reorder them. Or reorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that idea that you separate medium of exchange from store of wealth, which by the way, I kind of do at the moment, in that Bitcoin is my store of wealth, and... The pound or the dollar when I'm here as my medium of exchange. I sometimes use my Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, but very rarely. I do have these two separate uh, forms of money that do two separate things for me. 
There are some people that believe that Bitcoin can do both, and you would be fundamentally disagreeing with that. Not fundamentally. Oh. I think in practice. I in think practice. in practice because it's fixed, because there's uncertainty about the, the number. And when you have a fixed monetary exchange, you make price unpredictable. Right. I think that's probably that's one of the biggest problems, although the, uh, apart from lack of widespread use of Bitcoin as a medium. But if Bitcoin became acceptable in a much wider, uh, much wider, much wider economic and commercial footprint, then it could be a medium of exchange. I'm not against that at all. I think there are drawbacks to the way Bitcoin is designed. I think it represented a very good step forward in thinking about finally thinking about the monetary system mm. and doing something alternative. But I'm not sure it's it's an ideal or even a close to ideal medium of exchange. And given that uh, that is our primary problem, I think maybe uh, it, that's where we should focus first, and then worry about store value and everything else later. So it may be that you have a hybrid system where we have medium of exchange is something else, and then store value because it's fixed. Um, scarcity is always creates value, and value is really the the point here that Bitcoin becomes the store of value. Mm. And maybe there's some form of convertibility between the two forms. Interesting. Okay, well, let's let's get into the euro dollar. <laughs> and like I'm five. Explain to me like I'm five, because uh, I, I have done my research, and I have tried to understand it, but I can't. I just cannot get my head around what the euro dollar is. Well, there, that's the thing. There is no euro dollar. And even the term itself sort of lends itself to that sort of misunderstanding. <laughs> it's not like there's physical stacks of paper with just a different picture of a, a you know I don't know an offshore president or something on them there, there's no currency it's a ledger based system but what has happened is that well where did it come from how did it nobody really knows to be honest with you <laughs> there's all sorts of origin stories and it, i mean ironically enough russia the soviet union not wanting their dollars to be confiscated by you know president kennedy or eisenhower back then started storing these dollars in european banks um, there's also vagaries of the, the breakdown of the mer- uh, British mercantile system, and after, especially after the Suez crisis in the 50s, where more and more the, globe, the world stopped using pounds and started using dollars. But to transmit transactions, uh, to transmit currency across the world, it was easier to do it on a ledger-based system, especially with the communications technology. You could send a telex around the world at the speed of light and then have that subtle transaction we don't need to wait for currency to be exchanged physically from one place to the next. So as long as we have these institutions that we all agree on are good people or at least going to follow accounting rules and internal conventions, we allow them to keep this ledger system. So instead of you, me giving you a physical Federal Reserve note, say a $5 bill to pay for something, you know, transacting from one country to the next, we just have a couple banks keep track of who owes what. So it's a ledger virtual currency system maintained by the banking system. So okay, okay. So it's a database. Essentially, yes. It's, it's, it's blockchain. <laughs> it's really what it was. Well, so but who maintains it? The banks. But what every one of them has their the same one? Everyone I mean, how does it work? You say the banks these high street banks, these commercial banks? There are banks that operate in the system. Yes, many of them started out being city banks or okay. Swiss banks. And um, over, you know, long before the euro dollar showed up, there was this ad hoc correspondent network that existed for many decades, even centuries, going back to the you know, early days of the British Empire system. So banks that had transacted across the entire world had relationships where they knew each other very well. And so when the euro dollar started showing up or when this, this need to overcome Triffin's paradox in the late 50s became paramount, 
Explain, they just start explain Triffin's paradox. It goes back to the the flaws in the design of Bretton Woods. Okay, Bretton Woods was the post war monetary era, uh, nineteen forty four. John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White said, "You know, how is the world going to work after World War II is over and the Allies win and the Axis is vanquished?" And they said, "Will it be? A, we don't want it to be a purely international currency, a fiat, uh, entirely fiat system." So they made sure that the pound and the uh, U.S. dollar would be backed by national stores of gold. So it was, in some ways, at least apparent, it looked like the old system did. However, as Robert Triffin eventually said, there is this national natural tendency or inherent paradox in that system because you have to have, in order to have a global reserve currency, I think this is part of the thing that most people misunderstand. What is a global reserve currency system? What is it supposed to do and how is it done? How is it actually accomplished? And to have a global reserve currency means having a global currency that's useful in enough places and enough of that currency available in enough places that very different economies, very different systems can intermediate through that currency very easily. And to do that, you need to have currency, uh, if it's an international reserve currency, in excess of the national reserves backing it. So what Robert Triffin said is by... For example, the U.S. dollar, by using that as a reserve currency, that meant there needed to be U.S. dollars in enough places around the world that there would be more U.S. dollars than there are gold backing it inside the United States. And eventually, because it's convertible, people would convert their U.S. dollars outside the U.S. for gold inside the U.S., draining the U.S. of its gold, therefore eventually leading to complete chaos and unbacked currency, which is exactly what happened in the late 1950s. The U.S. lost a ton of gold because there was a lot of these dollar balances outside the U.S. in order to mediate this global, this wave of economic globalization, financial linking, trade, and everything else. So the global U.S. dollar system, this euro dollar system, was essentially a way to work around tying these out the the, the currency outside the U.S. to national stores of gold and, and, and reserves. Right. So it was a way to circumvent all that and do so in a very clandestine, quiet manner that nobody in the public really actually caught on to it. Right. So say, uh, say Jeff, I've got my bank here in London um, and I've got euro dollars in my bank and you've got your bank and say you're in France and you've got your euro dollars. How do we keep each other honest? If, if I send euro dollars to you, how do you know I have those in my system? Are we all sharing one database? Essentially, yeah. It's not really a database, especially in the early days. It's more about reputation. It's about traders back then knew, every, knew everybody else's businesses. So if you were doing something wrong, if you were just conjuring you know, outside the rules or outside your own conventions, we would know about it. And we would no longer transact with you. And you would be out of business. But how, how would you know the balance I claimed to have was my actual balance? I could just put a little bit more in there. How would you know? There, I mean, in terms of euro dollars, you, you say because essentially, if it's a it's a distributed ledger, we right. all know how many euro dollars are in the system, and at the end of each day, I you know transact with other banks and I settle my euro dollars with them, and vice versa. How do we all know who actually has what? Does everyone, double accounting? Oh, it's done, it was done through double accounting. Yeah, so your numbers have to match my numbers, which match the guy over here and the guy. I mean. We're all basically, you know, is, is, you know, there may be a, a bunch of uh, participants in the system, but everybody's numbers have to match at the end of the day. And if they don't, they get settled in other ways. There are internal conventions, uh, ad hoc associations where you have to follow the rules. And if, you know, bankers don't like you, they'll kick you out of the, 
the kick you out of the association, you're out of business. So right. it's, it's essentially an honor system. An honor system. Okay. And how does liquidity go into it? It's created by that system. But how? Explain to me how. Balance sheet expansion. Okay, so keep going. <laughs> this is where it gets really yeah. complicated. So if we're operating on a ledger money system that's internal, what expands the ledger? In something like blockchain, it's hard coded into the blockchain, right? You can't you can't expand it unless right. you mine more Bitcoin. It's, exactly. Yeah. But in an other distributed ledger technology, other distributed ledger system, you can expand the ledger based on everybody is agreeing that the ledger has been expanded. So if I say, for example, uh, no different than a fractional reserve lending system, that I have assets and liabilities that I want to add to my balance sheet that I'm going to create some form of transaction that does both of those things. So if we transact back and forth between, say, you're a bank in some other location that wants to borrow dollars, I can create them in the same way that any other fractional reserve system creates dollars, by creating a deposit liability and a cash asset. But it's not actually cash. It's cash and equivalents. If you've ever read balance sheets of banks or balance sheet statements in banks, they always have that little word, you know, the and equivalents there because there isn't cash here. So it's all about creating assets, double accounting, and offsetting liabilities. Right. So if that bank wants to create loans, say they want to loan a business a million dollars, they... that creates both an asset and a liability. Right. But they're essentially printing money to create that loan. Out of thin air. Right. And if that loan fails? fails then you have a balance sheet issue. And is that something that happens? Yes, absolutely. But it, it, this, just sounds, this just sounds like a system, like an old boys club. We yes. can just create money as we need. Yep. Hmm. Now you can understand why we got to 2007 and 2000. Where did subprime mortgages come from? Because eventually, when the, you get into recency bias and confirmation bias, you start thinking, this is great. This is awesome. We're financial institutions that can basically print money and intermediate it at the same time, which means we can do anything. So after a while, where it, does, where it appears like nothing goes wrong, you start thinking nothing will ever go wrong. And so everybody oh. just starts creating money out of thin air and doing the stupidest things with it. Because it seems like it works and will always work. So we'll take all these mortgage liabilities, we'll wrap them up. And, and that, we'll sell them to everybody. We'll sell them to everyone. And including each other. We'll buy, them, we'll buy them ourselves. It's even more complicated than that because then you use those securities as the basis for some of these funding relationships and repo and derivatives and things like that. But by and large, that's what it really is. It's a cabal of insiders that control money. That's how we went from... You know, the 1960s and 70s with little quaint banks, and yes, there were state regulations, national regulations, making sure that banks didn't cross state lines, but even international banks were all tiny. Then you get into the 90s and 2000s, banks are everywhere. Financial institutions are everywhere. They're huge. It's like they've taken over because, as the Austrians say, cantillion effects, those those who create money get the benefits first. Uh They absolutely did that. And so where did too big to to fail come from? That wasn't the government, that was the banking system wanting to hold on to the status quo, which privileged them. Not just privileged them in terms of being able to create this money and keep this ledger system going, but also the information asymmetry that left them on top of everything. But it was also that they could create the economic boom by having control of the money, which would ultimately lead to the success of the banks and the people who are making those decisions being paid well, receiving big bonuses. 
Is that essentially what creates that contagion? Yeah, and part of, I mean, look, let's, let's face it, that there were positive benefits to this. Again, okay. there's a reason why governments let this system go for as long as they did, because by and large, I mean, apart from the great inflation, but especially the 90s, 1980s, 90s, and middle 2000s, which was called the so-called great moderation for a reason, because it did spread prosperity around much of the world. You think about China, emerging markets, China in particular. 1980s, China was an agrarian subsistence economy. Nowadays, it's an industrial powerhouse. That was financed by this monetary expansion in the Eurodollar system. So it's not like bankers were just a bunch of evil, greedy bastards who said, we're going to just create money for our own benefit. They were doing it because they were filling a role that the global economy needed. Again, Triffin's paradox. As that happened, is it created GDP and output around the rest of the world, created prosperity through many of these places. They started, then it started getting into extremes where it thought, well, let's, let's do more. Let's do only more. Let's do riskier things because it can't possibly go wrong. Look at, look at the prosperity we're creating here. And that's what happened. Natural human cycles, natural human fallibilities, except there was no check on that system because it was perfect. Well, not perfectly. Because it was incredibly elastic, the monetary, the money creation function just got way out of hand. And is there any oversight of this euro dollar? Not really. Huh. And do we know how much is how much money is in that system? I have no idea. <laughs> Crazy. And that's the thing. I mean, um, there are. You go back to say the 1960s, 70s. A few institutions like uh, BIS tried to keep track because this is off offshore. First of all, it's outside the regulatory authority of anybody. So you have a bank in the Cayman Islands or the City of London or Zurich or whatever. They may be physically located in those places, but those places, the governments in those local jurisdictions have privileged the banking system and said, okay, you're a bank in the city of London. As long as your clients aren't UK citizens, we don't care what you do. So if you're an international bank and you want no regulation, set up shop in the city of London or in the Cayman Islands. You go to the Cayman Islands, which is this massive uh, US dollar denominated redistribution point for the Euro dollar system, you would think there these huge banks are all located there. There aren't any banks on the there aren't any banks on the island. There's no big vaults, no cash there. It's all accountants and attorneys and uh, lobbyists. So is it just a big IOU system? Yes, claims. So we started out with claims on actual cash, but you know this system is more efficient when we don't have to transact in cash. So instead of me giving you actual cash, I'll just pay you next week. So now we create a series of cash flows that are treated as cash, and we'll even discount the value and call it a present value and say that's worth this, this future cash flow that I've, I've just created, it's worth X. Now I put that on my balance sheet, and it's as if it's actual money. And what's, where is this primary, where does this turn up in the, the economic system? Where, where does it kind of turn up in the economy? Who are using these euro dollars? I know these banks are, but where's the output going to? Loans. Loans. Debt. And Securities, how, financial markets. But and how's that turned into actual money that people can use? When you go to the gas station or grocery store, yeah. do you use actual cash? Or do you use a credit card, a debit card, or your phone? Well, yeah, I use any of those. But my, or a check. Yeah, but my assumption is that the, the, the banks in the UK, there are settlements between them. Or are they the same, cash and equivalents? It's they all do have a ledger vault. money system. Everything's ledger money system. Even ATMs nowadays aren't even used. And it's, not, it's been this way for, like I said, over a century. So even before we got to you know, electronic payment, cash, uh, debit cards, and all that, people wrote checks. And what is a check? A check is every bit like cash, but it's a, it's a paper claim on another bank's cash. So you go to the grocery store, I, I write a check, 
I give the grocery store a check. They give me goods. Therefore, I've got, you know, there's a legitimate real economy transaction that took place. But what happens behind the scenes? This is the part nobody ever thinks about. Behind the, behind the scenes, that check is then presented for payment from one bank to the next. And so the, all the bank has to do is say, oh, I'll credit you this number of dollars on your account with me. We don't need to exchange any cash at all. It's just a ledger book entry system. So, so the euro dollar actually has nothing to do with the dollar apart from the fact it's, it's pegged to it? It's not pegged. It's just denominated in U.S. dollars out of convenience. Fine. So it's but, not actually U.S. dollars or even claims on U.S. Well, dollars. Well, what does it peg? Like, but if I have one euro dollar, is that worth the same as one U.S. Yeah, because there is no euro dollar. Euro dollar is itself a derivative term. It's, uh, euro simply means offshore. So you see the term euro in front of a currency. Off, offshore dollars. Offshore dollars. So these are dollars that exist outside the United States, except they're virtual dollars. So if I wanted to, say uh, me, you, Danny, Jeremy, say we created our own little economy between us. We could, we could share, do a double accounting. We could call it the Peter dollar. And we could create 100 each. And we could transact between ourselves mm-hmm. if we wanted to. Right. But then maybe... I want to go and buy a car, and I I could use that, and I would have that relationship with that bank to turn that to create a, an asset and a liability outside of our little system. Yep, it's essentially what uh, happened in 2017 with the ICO craze. Yeah, everybody tried to create their own coins, which is basically let's recreate the euro dollar. And the euro dollar wasn't itself a, 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 a brand new innovation either. Ghost money and ledger money goes back centuries. Um, you can go back to the the bullion famine in Europe in the 14th and 15th century for ghost money and fictional currencies that, that uh, arose because of a shortage of silver coin in, across Europe. So this idea that we create our own currency amongst a small group of people, distributed ledger, and just keep, it, keep track on a ledger, that goes back centuries. This is something that humans have done in any situation where actual official money becomes scarce. When it becomes inelastic, we create other means of payment because money is a tool for commerce. It always comes back to commerce and economy. If there's a shortage of money, commerce demands you create new forms. So what is the consequence of having this system? And is it a net positive or net negative for the U.S.? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question. I think you would say that, it, obviously, for the U.S. and for the world at large, it was a net positive up until 2007. Right. It obviously went too far, got into the extremes. But, I mean, we had the 1980s and 1990s were legitimate economic growth, robust economic growth during those periods, and not just in the U.S., all across the world. So the monetary system obviously performed what it was supposed to perform, the, the, the function of medium of exchange and unit of account, and it did those things very well. It kind of got out into, an extre- into the extreme situation around 1995 or so, and then obviously led to the collapse afterwards. But is it one of these things whereby, like, uh, it's a great system that drives economic growth and prosperity, but in the end, debts have to be repaid, everything has to come back to equilibrium, and therefore we now have to go through this very painful period to get us back to equilibrium. And that's really the argument, right? Is it worth it? Is it worth 20 years of prosperity for maybe 20 years or more of misery and deflation? Or during that 20 years of prosperity and 20 years of misery, is it fair or are there some people who benefit? Yeah. You know, if you go through the period of prosperity, you're going to create a lot of rich people and this, those rich people maybe can survive the, the economic downturn better because they have the right assets, the right you know, uh, wealth, you know, the right stores of wealth. Whereas those who 
you know, maybe have seen a, a, a rise in their prosperity uh, uh, relative to what it would have been, but are going through the most difficult economic hardship over the next 20 years. Yeah, it just disappears. Yeah. Which is the, arg- the historical argument against deflationary depressions from the very beginning, since they first showed up in the early 1800s. And people are like, what the hell is this? You know, why do we have widespread unemployment? It's the idea that when you have currency become too inelastic, when the, the people who do well, and we want them to do well during boom times, because people doing well during boom times are what creates the boom. So we want rich people. We want, we want some, form, some level of inequality because that's what free markets and capitalism means. However, when the currency fl- uh, switch gets flipped to inelasticity and deflation, then you have the downside. Then you have the argument of whether or not, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the maybe inevitable consequences of these boom-bust cycles? And that's a tricky thing because the people on top who benefit the most are going to resist doing anything, right? They're going to say, well, we had it really good and we don't want to change anything. And it's, you're right. There are all sorts of questions about fairness and equality and distribution, as well as economic questions about sustainability and efficiency. Yeah, see, some, some Bitcoiners say that we shouldn't worry about deflation. Some will. Some, some say, look, um, if, you, if you didn't measure inflation and deflation, if, you just, if the measure didn't exist, the economy would continue to function. The fact that you measure it and you allow people to think it's happening, it can, it can drive the fear so, in the markets. So deflation is a psychological thing? I don't think that's... The, no, I mean... Whether or not we measure prices, the fact of the matter is, even today, the fact that you turn on the TV and hear, before 2020, turn on the TV and hear everybody talk about the booming economy, yeah. everybody knows it wasn't. You know, the unemployment rate was the lowest it had been in 50, 50 years, but yet the labor market in the United States or around the rest of the world had never recovered, and people knew that. So, so let's talk about the, the, general, the general 2% inflation target that governments talk about. I've known ever since I was a kid, you turn on the news, we're trying to target 2% inflation, we're at 3, we're at 1, but we need to get it back to 2. Uh, some people say inflation is a uh, stealth tax um, and that we should not be targeting inflation. Where do you come in that? The inflation target is, pardon my friends, bullshit. Okay. And it's supposed to be. It reinforces the idea that the Federal Reserve is a central bank, and therefore it is targeting inflation, it is responsible for inflation, but it simply reinforces what the Federal Reserve actually does, which is try to manipulate opinions and emotions. Uh, ben Bernanke just said recently, because, as, he said, as he wrote his first blog post at Brookings in 2015, he, he admitted monetary policy is 98% talk. It's actually not. It's 98% bullshit and 2%. The 2% truth is what I'm telling you, which is these private discussions where they worry. We don't, we don't know how to measure money. We don't even know what's going on in the monetary system. Someday that's going to bite us in the ass. That's what Greenspan would say all the time in the 1990s. Nobody listened to him. His irrational exuberance speech, for example, 1996. People my age remember that during the dot-com era because they heard irrational exuberance and thought stock market. What he actually said was, we can't measure or even define money, so how would we know if assets are behaving rationally or irrationally? That's what he actually said. So this inflation targeting nonsense is simply to create the illusion that they're in control of all these things they are not in control of. And they just kind of fingers crossed as long as the correlation between them moving the federal funds rate around a little bit up or down here or there and economic outcomes seems to be relatively plausible, Everything seems to be fine. So in the 80s and 90s, it sounded like 
you know, the Alan Greenspan would raise the federal funds rate a quarter of a point, and then growth would kind of slow, or it seemed like it might be slowed, or the economy maintained stability throughout that decade. So maybe moving the, the federal funds rate around actually had some benefit when it was all just smoke and mirrors. It was all incredible bullshit. So what does drive it then? What the Eurodollar system. That's it's, the it's, thing. It's, it's entirely. Yes. So prosperity, all the stuff of the last 70 years has been, the Eurodollar system is behind it all. Where did the great inflation come from? People don't know that. People think the Fed printed too much money. The Fed doesn't even know what money is. They wouldn't know how to print it. The banking system went nuts in the 60s and 70s, and there was nothing to stop it. Oh, oh, so right, we had okay. the Eurodollar system, the banking system, creating way too much money outside the United States as well as inside the United States. That led to the great inflation. So we have the, the essentially, especially during the great moderation, you have the Federal Reserve essentially taking credit for what the Eurodollar was doing. Do you have any allies that agree with you on this? Sure. You do. We're going to we're gonna have to ask Lynn about this. Mm-hmm. You know, who's Lynn? Lynn Orden. She oh, she would disagree. Over. She would disagree. Absolutely. Why would she disagree? Because she's a, tra- she's a traditionalist. Okay. Um, you don't have to take my word for it on any of this. Oh, no, of course. But, but like. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about you can take the word of Alan Greenspan, Van Bernanke, Paul Volcker, all Federal Reserve officials going back to the beginning of the Eurodollar system. What they don't say in public and what they actually say in private is exactly what I'm telling you. We have no idea how to do money. When I do presentations, most of my presentation is using quotes from these people. So if you don't believe me because yeah. I'm just some funny-looking guy who shows up out of, out of the blue, then take their word for it. The famous quote I use from June of 2000, which was a private internal FOMC discussion, where they were talking about how they, they're required by law to produce monetary targets. Going back to the Humphrey Hawkins Act in 1977, when Congress realized, hey, all this inflation business is probably money. We should probably have the central bank do something about it. So you're required to, to produce money targets. And in 2000, like, we continue to produce these monetary targets we don't use because they're complete crap. M1 and M2 were obsolete in the 60s. So we're producing these monetary targets. And the quote Greenspan said was, the idea that we can base monetary policy on actual money has become a dubious proposition because he said, the proliferation of financial products has been so extreme, we can't define money. And the proliferation of financial products is exactly what I'm saying. How these banks in this internal Eurodollar system actually transact back and forth. The actual vi- forms of liquidity, the forms of assets and liability that go on the banking sheet are, di- are things that would blow your mind, like a currency swap. How is a currency swap, a derivative transaction, how is that actual physical currency? How is it like physical currency? Well, it is. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin and wider crypto industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty in finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB and I could not be happier. BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this. If you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies, rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you may want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcb 
G-R-O-U-P.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs too, and I am mining Bitcoin with Compass. I've been mining for over 10 months, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has more than paid off two of my S19s. Anyone can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors, such as price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I am happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. If you are interested in mining and you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, I'm still only buying. Come on, look at this market. It is the time to buy. We're not sellers right now, are we? Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying these dips, and I have also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did, All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. I'm just going to say what I've heard. Okay, so speaking to people regularly on the podcast, different economists, uh, different analysts, will say that the US government or the, the Fed has expanded the uh, the balance sheet by, mm-hmm. f- say, 40%. Yep. So uh, Makes no difference. It makes no difference. None. Why not? Bank reserves are not money. Bank reserves are an internal token. But, it, but they have a very limited use, and they can't escape the system. So, but but isn't it a case of um, again? This is where I'm hugely out of my depth. But they go into the market, they go and buy they go and buy assets. Sure, they they print the money to buy the assets. No. That no no. How do they buy the assets? They create a, a live. Remember, double accounting. So they have to they they in the quantitative easing or LSAP transaction. From the perspective of the Fed, they increase their balance sheet, which means they, they buy a bond and add the bond to the asset side yeah. and create a remainder called a bank reserve, which is used as an asset for the commercial banks. However, you or I can't get our hands on bank reserves. A company can't get its hands on bank reserves. Bank reserves are only a lot, an interbank token that has very limited use inside the banking system or inside the, inside the interbank system. So it's not like you or I are going to go into the real economy and use a bank reserve because we can't. Nobody can. But so what actually happens... Do those bank reserves make their way into the euro-dollar system? No. No. They're, they're a simple, single-use token. Usually their use, at least traditionally, had been to satisfy reserve requirements. But over the last 50 years, reserve requirements don't matter because nobody uses cash liquidity. 
So there is no need for a reserve requirement. Therefore, reserves are essentially an interbank token to settle, say, gross real-time transactions. But why would they go and buy these assets then? For three reasons, none of which are actually legitimate, none okay. of which are money printing. So let's, let's start here. Quantitative easing. Everybody looks at quantitative easing from the perspective of the Fed's balance sheet, and that's understandable because you think the Fed is an actual central bank. You think it's actually printing money when, in fact, you have to look at things from the perspective of the commercial bank they're transacting with. And when you look, after, uh, when you look after, at the tr- perspective of the commercial bank, after a QE transaction, nothing has changed. So I'm a commercial bank. You're the Fed. I have a U.S. Treasury that you want to buy because you're doing quantitative easing. We'll get to why they want to do quantitative easing in a second. So what happens is I give you the Treasury. Mm -hmm. You create the bank reserves on your balance sheet, which now I have as an asset. So from my perspective, all that has changed is I've swapped the Treasury for a bank reserve asset. That's it. What do I do with those bank reserve assets? Nothing. It's it's, it's just an inert asset on the balance sheet. So nothing has changed. It's simply an asset swap. And it's not a good one either. So why does the Fed or any central bank do QE if all it is is an asset swap for a commercial bank? And the answer is, well, there are three proposed theoretical channels for QE. Again, you don't have to take my word for it. This is not me talking. No, no. This is from the you know, academic scholarship from the central bankers themselves. They'll tell you there's three theoretical channels for quantitative easing, and none of them are money printing. The first one is interest rates. Because it seems like if I'm buying bonds from the market, I'm the central bank. Now I'm the central bank. I'm buying bonds from the market. That should raise the price of those bonds, therefore lowering the interest rate. So theoretically, a central bank coming in and buying an asset raises the price of that asset. If it's a financial asset like a bond, therefore interest rates go down. And as we've been taught from basically the beginning of Economics 101, we're told to associate lower interest rates with stimulus, which actually isn't true, by the way. Lower interest rates actually signal the opposite of stimulus. But we're, we're all told, remember, this is all psychology. We're all told that lower interest rates are beneficial. So the first theoretical channel is I buy bonds, raise their price, lower their interest rate. That helps the public think that we've stimulated stuff. The second theoretical channel is something called portfolio effects. Portfolio effects are, again, I'm the commercial bank. I just swapped the U.S. Treasury, which actually had a, a relatively decent return on that asset for bank reserves, which have a credibly crappy return. So it's an asset. So I went from a decent return to a crappy return. So what the Fed is expecting is that in order to replace that earning power, I'm going to go into the market and do something and buy a risky bond or actually lend, which is what they're really trying to do. If I take all your treasuries as a commercial bank, I'm hoping you're going to replace them by lending. Yeah. Not using the reserves, but using your own balance sheet space to lend because you need to earn a a spread in order to remain in business. But what ends up happening in practice is central banks will take safe assets from banks, commercial banks, and then they'll go on the market and buy more and just replace them. So that's the second theoretical channel, which is portfolio effects, or what they call portfolio effects. And then the third one is, believe it or not, sentiment. And the sentimental channel is nothing more than playing upon the public's ignorance about what actually goes on here. If you believe that the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet is inflationary because they're printing money— then the Fed expects that you will act on that belief and you will actually become inflationary. If enough people think that the Fed have printed money, that they all start buying you know, assets, you know, you know, Bitcoin or other assets to shelter from, that sends a signal to the rest of the economy, oh, the market expects inflation. Therefore, people in the real economy act as if inflation is going to be coming because you'll think, well, prices are going to go up. I better start buying stuff now. Yeah. 
you create this self-fulfilling prophecy where you're essentially pulling forward activity today based on the psychological manipulation, which is nothing more than bullshit. It's all sentiment. So the three theoretical channels of quantitative easing, and guess what? Quantitative easing has been around for over 20 years. The Bank of Japan started with it in March of 2001. So 21 plus years. And guess how much effect they found in those three radical channels. And not, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about academic studies conducted by central banks and other economists. They don't work. None of them. There is no correlation whatsoever between bank reserves and real economic outcomes. And this predates the quantitative easing era. This goes back to Paul Volcker. Again, what I said about in the 1970s and 80s. People have a very misunderstanding, a big misunderstanding what Volcker did. They think he stopped great inflation by using bank reserves. The idea was if you curtail or constrain the low amount of bank reserves, that would constrain the amount of depository money creation, which then would limit bank credit, which then would limit economic activity and bring inflation back under control. So it was a very simple equation. Limit bank reserves, eventually you create, uh, you, you restrain the economy through the banking channel. Didn't happen. That's not what happened at all because there is no correlation between bank reserves actual effective money, bank credit, and the real economy because the banking system broke that link between bank reserves and the money they used long before then, decades before we got to the 1970s. So bank reserves are nothing more than a policy byproduct of accounting. So how does the euro dollar drive inflation? And what's particularly happened over the last, whatever, couple of years that has led to the current high rates of inflation? Because there is a correlation between global pandemic Massive amounts of stimulus and high inflation. That story, that, that narrative, it makes sense. It's logical. Well, but you're saying it's not that. You're saying it's euro dollar. So uh, how, how is it the euro dollar that's caused that? So we've been hearing that for ever since the first quantitative easing in the United States back in 2009. They're going to destroy the dollar. They're printing money. Inflation's going to get loose. All this stuff. That didn't just start in 2021. That goes back to 2009. So the and Fed doing all that stuff, we did not see any of those things happen. In fact, the dollar has only gone higher. We've seen disinflation, lack of economic growth, lack of recovery up until 2021. So something changed in 2021 that was different from how everything had performed before. The thing that changed was not quantitative easing, nor was it actually government intervention. What actually changed was, as you said, the pandemic, which created all sorts of supply bottlenecks and restrictions. What we've seen over the last year, even today, the CPI report that was just released, which was another 40-year high, is not money printing. It's not even inflation. It's simply a supply shock. The difference between small economics of an elastic supply curve and a rightward shift in demand, a temporary rightward shift in demand. The only way to balance those two curves is if prices go higher. Right. So if more people demand a product and I'm not able to supply as many products as it's demand, I can charge more for that same product. Even though I'm selling less of that product, I'll make more money. So it takes me back to that, um, there's that YouTube video like about how a pencil's made. It's like nobody knows how to make a pencil. Have you, have you ever seen it? I've the, the, is that from the poem? I don't, it might be. But yeah. and it basically goes through every part of a pencil because there's rubber, there's graphite, there's wood, but then it talks about every element of getting it together. So like where the, uh, the people who cut the wood trees and then ch- cut it into the smaller parts. Like no, no one person can make a pencil because there's hundreds of people in the supply chain that come together to create a simple pencil. And therefore with the pandemic, when you close down an economy, you have a lot of issues. So for example, right now, 
uh, when I flew out here, I we sat on the well. Our flight was delayed an hour, and then we sat on the <laughs> runway for an hour because they didn't have enough baggage handlers right. to uh, to get the bags through and put them on the plane. And the airport have asked uh, the airlines to cancel thousands of flights because what happened was during the pandemic they let the baggage handlers go, <clears throat> and there's that time delay period, that lag for now from finding people who want the job, getting them security clearance to allow them to do the job. Okay, so you spread that through the whole economy. You've got lots of little, uh, uh, I don't know, lots of little pressures on parts of the supply chains. Inefficiencies. Inefficiencies. And I guess that's if you close the global economy down for a year and a half, two years, you're going to create lots of breakages, and that's just going to take time to fix. And then the time that takes to fix, those pressures are going to have... uh, uh, going to push prices upwards. Right. That is what you're saying. It's a supply shock. Okay, it's a supply shock. And it's actually worse than that because it wasn't just we shut everything down, let everything come back. It's we shut everything down, started to come back, shut everything down again, started to come back. Some places shut down, other places didn't. And then there were all sorts of other friction, frictions and inefficiencies on top of feedback effects, which just made it that much worse. So the pandemic is what changed, not the Fed or QE or even or any of the other things. And if you look at the actual financial statistics that, are, that come from the Federal Reserve, by the way, you won't see any money being printed. What you'll see is gross credit across the U.S. economy, including a massive proportion that comes from outside the U.S. economy, denominated in dollars because it's the euro dollar system. There is a parabolic rise up until 2008 and then flat since. And there was no break in 2020 except for the federal government liability, which obviously exploded when the the fiscal deficits from the CARES Act forward. Danny, can you try and find a 20-year inflation chart? I want to see from 10 years prior to 2008 crisis through the 2008 crisis right up to now, because that would be super interesting because lots changed in that period. And if inflation was fairly stable, the version of events you're telling me also makes sense. So are you also one of those people that I have Stephanie Kelton on the phone, the uh, MMT expert. A lot of people, uh, yeah. So here we go. See how it went lower after 2008? So and persistently we, lower so, despite so we, the Fed supposedly printing money. So, so, in, two, so in 2000, and the, yeah, so that's 2008, 2009. You can we just had, see the, but it's the been average fairly shift steady. before we can 2008. Further, and you, can actually, you actually see it better when you look at bond yield. Hold on, so so your 20% was at about 1950. Okay, that's post-war. You can actually see the euro dollar system come online. Look at how the behavior of the CPI changes around 1955. But I want to follow your logic. Okay, so during that war period, we had masses, we had high inflation. The highest inflation looks to me... About 20. It's about, looks like it's probably the five years after the... This end of the Second World War. And that wasn't money printing either. No, that's that going- was a supply shock after the post-war. The European economy yeah. came up. There wasn't enough supply. We were still rebuilding, still retooling after the war. Yeah, that's that makes sense. That's like the, the same the same thing we're experiencing now. What happened in 1980? 1980 was the Great Inflation. What is so it? The end of the Great Inflation. You have the first phase of the euro dollar system between the middle 50s and 1980, where it just got crazy. And eventually it fell apart because you have losses build up in the system. You have the Latin debt crisis, for example, where banks sort of just, by 1980, they had done too much and sort of took a two-year break. Okay, just for people listening on the podcast who can't see, or not watching the YouTube and don't see this. So this is the interesting thing is that from, uh, let's say about what, about 1985 to about 2008, 
inflation would range between around looks like between about one and five percent, but but generally between about one and three percent, fairly consistency the odd spike out. Then there's a spike up of inflation to about five percent that looks like that was right at the start of the financial crisis, and then it's gone down to minus two, about minus two percent. So the year the 2010, the, the year that followed. The financial crisis. We actually had deflation. It was two thousand nine. Yeah, but there was also massive stimulus at that point. It didn't stimulate. <laughs> well, it didn't cause inflation. But but is that because? Well, that's uh, because global financial crisis. People just bought less shit. No, it was. Be- well, yeah. Obviously, there was the economy got hammered globally, but you also have a change in monetary behavior. You had the euro dollar no longer providing liquidity, providing enough money throughout the euro dollar system, which created that deflation and defeated the purpose of the psychological bullshit from the Federal Reserve and the federal government. And the federal government's stimulus isn't really stimulus as much as it is a temporary redistribution of resources. So it's not like the, the federal government is adding more to the economy. They're sort of taking it from some parts and giving it to others, which is incredibly inefficient, as the Japanese can attest to, over the last 30 years. More government intervention leads to more deflation down the road because it creates more inefficiencies across the economy. Danny, what so, do you think, man? Because this is like this is a complete departure from every conversation we've had yeah. in the last year. There's a, like, and, and, but don't bear with me. I'm like, it also makes sense. I'm, and history also shows that. Well, let's talk about history. Yeah. There's an easy way to settle this. Hold on, would, you character, would you characterize the Great Depression as inflationary? I mean, I don't really remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but what you've heard about it, what uh, everybody says about it, no. it's the opposite, yeah, right? It's deflationary. Yeah. What happened to interest rates during the Great Depression? Um, I don't know. They went they up? They went down. Oh, they went down. Okay. See, you think that they would go up because yeah. you're taught higher rates you associate with tight money. Yeah. It's the opposite. Because we're, what we're talking about is what we can see. And what we can see in the monetary system, financial system, is Interest rates falling have, are due to um, the most traded, most liquid assets, which happen to be government bonds. And government bonds are safe and liquid. So when the demand for safe and liquid goes up, interest rates fall. What, has happened, what, what can we say about the environment if demand for safety and liquidity is high? Just it's consistent me. with yeah. the Great Depression. Yeah. So the Great Depression, deflation, lack of money, interest rates fall. What has happened to interest rates over the last 15 years? Gone to zero and sometimes negative. Demand for safe and liquid is through the roof. What does that tell you about safety and liquidity, regardless of the level of bank reserves created by the Federal Reserve? The euro dollar system has broken down, and the Federal Reserve does QE because it wants to try to fix it through this psychological manipulation that doesn't work. So the market is already telling you. And I know the counter-argument is, well, interest rates are low because central banks buy bonds. Well, even the central banks themselves would tell you that's not how it works. So interest rates have fallen because demand for safety and liquidity remains as high as ever, which tells you the monetary system itself is telling you that we want safety and liquidity. We don't want to lend. See, that's the part you don't see. Because interest rates to you know, local mom and pop businesses are infinity. They can't get loans if they wanted to, because safety and liquidity are what is demanded by balance sheet, or by banks, which is when we go back to the quantitative easing transaction we talked about. This is why banks will sell a safe liquid bond to the Fed, and they go in the market and replace it with a safe liquid bond. They don't go and lend because they don't want to lend. The liquidity and safety environment says safety and liquidity, otherwise you become Bear Stearns. 
but but we're we're sort of told that QE is adding liquidity to the market. But if that's not who, <laughs> but if that's not the case, well, that's the thing. Who's telling you that? Well, I mean, it's just you actually you can't actually get um, other than Jay Powell on sixty Minutes in May of twenty twenty. Central bankers won't even say that because they know it's not true. Okay, so how does the, does the euro dollar market put liquidity in the system? By balance sheet expansion. You know, it's the same way that you would have liquidity during a fractional uh, under a fractional reserve system. How does a fractional reserve system work? You put cash in a vault and then create loans based on different claims on the same cash. Well, you can do the same thing just to eliminate the reserves. You don't need cash. You just create different claims based on whatever internal functions or goals you're seeking. It's a lot to follow. You're getting it, Danny. It is a lot to follow, but I think so. It's, that's the thing. It's, you know, it, this is not something that's easy. It, it's, it's really hard to get Hold your... Hold on. Are we saying the euro dollar drives inflation or are we saying yes. supply shocks drive inflation? Because well, supply... What we're, what we're actually experiencing now is not inflation. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. What we're, what we're experiencing yeah. is consumer price acceleration due to the supply shock. Right, okay. So I know people, oh, you're just splitting hairs, right? But would, but would you say then, therefore, once, would you see the prices eventually come down? Yes. Oh, so you, you do think it's transitory? Absolutely. So does the market. So does I the mean, monetary system. So I can see that on gas prices. I, can, I could fully understand that. Petrol prices in the UK, because um, the, we had a change in the energy markets with the war, and we're, we're seeing it. The price of the mm-hmm. barrel of oil price is falling. So we would expect that to happen at the gas pumps, or they they never seem to bring it down. It's almost like uh, well, there's no one to one. Well, it's almost like they realize, well, you know, people are still buying their fuel. We'll, well just the, keep our prices. As up. economists will say, prices are sticky. Yeah. So if they go up in a certain amount, when we say it's deflationary or transitory, it doesn't mean that the prices are going to go back to where they were. They may go back to where they were, but it'll take a long time for that to happen. But what usually happens is prices go up and then they kind of stay there. Right. And then they stay there, and then they stay there, and growth kind of meets where prices had been beforehand. And this is the thing where people confuse inc- inflation with price increases. Yes. Inflation... is not always. Yeah. You can have a price increase without inflation. Yes. And then you can have price increases right. with inflation. So like you were showing that 1946 uh, massive spike in, in consumer prices was not inflation. That was a supply shock based on restricted supply and, and, and growing demand, exactly as we're seeing today. So we would expect despite the fact that the CPI went higher today in the United States and it's likely to do in Europe, that yes, consumer price acceleration is transitory because it's not monetary inflation. You're saying some controversial things today, man. I'm only saying what the markets, what the money system, what the data, what the evidence tells me. And and it makes sense. Yeah, I know. I'm going to forward it all to Lynn Orden. Say, Lynn, can you listen to this? (laughs) What do we think? Okay, right. So I just want to go back to the euro dollar. It's not the expansions of the Fed's balance sheet that causes inflation because it's just a token swap. Right. But the expansion of the euro dollar does drive inflation because that does put more money. That right. is always expanding because a fractional it's because it's fractional reserve lending. It's essentially actually is pushing more money out there. Yes. Because you're creating loans, you're creating money, usable money that's on the ledger system. So there's more ledger essentially available to be used across the global economy. Okay, so if you go to Argentina with their whatever 50, 60, 70% uh, inflation, or you go to Turkey with their, I think they hit it 90%, why are they seeing massively, massive high inflation? Because they can't get dollars. <laughs> as paradoxical as that sounds. Is it really? Yes. Because the, in a restricted monetary environment, what happens? 
Global banks that are restricted in the amount of ledger, ledger money they can create, the amount of monetary resources they have available, they're going to be very picky about where they, where they um, distribute their, their chips, so to speak. In this opaque Eurodollar system, you right. Mean. So what, Turkey, Turkish banks aren't part of this? They are, but everybody needs dollars. Everybody's connected to the Eurodollar system. However, if you're a Eurodollar provider, you're not going to lend to Turkey because it's incredibly risky. Remember what I said, safety and liquidity are yep. the priority. Yep. Argentina and Turkey do not qualify as safety and liquidity. And the more the more constricted the Eurodollar system is, the more that don't qualify in terms of safety liquidity, draw a hard line. And so you see Argentina, Turkey, Sri Lanka, Beirut. Suddenly these countries can't get any dollars, which means they can't really transact on the global marketplace, which leads to all sorts of uh, economic, social, and political consequences. And again, they can't, is this the banks can't get dollars or the government? Who can't get the dollars? The local banks. The local so banks. the Turkish banks who need dollars to provide to the Turkish corporate sector, so the Turkish corporate sector can transact in dollars Internet. in the global marketplace, because right. you need dollars to transact. You can't use yuan unless you're transacting bilaterally with China, which that's all sorts of dangerous too. So you need dollars. Everybody needs dollars. It goes back to what we said. A reserve currency is a currency that is available and usable everywhere. But so in Turkey, these banks can't get dollars. Therefore, they're having to buy with the Turkish lira, which is higher risk. Therefore, therefore the price, the price is going, it goes up. And the lira. Goes down. Yep. And therefore, that has a compounding effect. Because next time they want to buy, well, your lira is dropping on one even more. And you're even riskier. So I'm going to charge you an even higher premium just to even talk to you. Huh. So the euro dollar is at the center of all of this. And safety and liquidity are dry, are the, which are the exact opposite of what we need for economic growth. We need risk taking, animal spirits, as John Maynard Keaton said. And with a liquidity environment and a broken euro dollar system. Are you a Keynesian? No. Okay. But I mean, John Maynard Keynes and everything that's done in his name, some of the worst stuff imaginable. Okay. However, that doesn't mean everything the guy said we should just throw out. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, fair. He has a lot of good ideas, like liquidity preferences. His liquidity preferences theory explains pretty much everything that's going on now. Okay, so so this is it takes me back to the this general fear of uh, Weimar-style uh, hyperinflation becoming uh, an issue in Western liberal democracies. Right. And you actually fear the opposite, which is deflation. Which is exactly what's happened over the last 15 years. We have had deflation. Yes. But that chart says... That's the U.S. you got to yeah. remember, this is a global system. We've had disinflation in the U.S. and outright deflation in other parts of the world, like Europe, Japan. So other major economies. Well, so Japan has stagflation. No. No? No. Japan has a lack of economic growth and deflation. Okay. Uh UK has had GDP growth. But it's not at the same rate it used to be. Again, you can ah. see these. You see growth. So it's disinfo- 2007, 2008 is like a somebody flipped a switch. It's not like growth stops entirely. So growth is slowing. It's slowed dramatically. Okay. So in the US, you'll see GDP growth go like this. Then there's a 2008 crash. And then it never recovers. Even though GDP before 2020 was at record highs, it was nowhere near it would have been had the economy continued to grow at the same pace uh, if 2008 never happened. In fact, it's so big, so different, that people don't even believe it when you draw the chart. We're about $6 trillion short in GDP after a dozen years of lack of economic growth. 
So okay. everybody thinks the economy was booming and inflationary, heard all that crap in 2017, 2018, you know, the last crypto bubble in 2017 in particular. Inflation's coming, globally synchronized growth, recovery, all that stuff. It never happened because it wasn't true. It was all just smoke and mirrors. Okay. So if that is true, is how, how much is this to do with the the productivity in the world? We've certainly seen a massive increase in financial products and services over tangible products and services. Is that anything part of it? Is that is that that's the quintillion effects of the euro dollars, right? But is is that part by of the being reason? able to create money? They essentially banks have created their own place in the world at the center of the world. So. Once you get, once you once you become the money printer and intermediation function, you need to create products. <laughs> essentially, that's what Alan Greenspan was saying. Proliferation of financial products is so extraordinary. We can't use money as a monetary policy because we don't do money. Right. So the actual the so this, the the risk is global recession. Yes. Deflation. Yes. Which is something we are seeing. We are seeing GDP growth slow. We're. It'll be a lot more yeah. <laughs> the last half of this year. And and is that an unstoppable force? Yes. Okay. So if this isn't even a case of, okay, this is what might come, this is what we should do, this is coming. I think that... And is this a reset? Re- it depends on what you mean by reset. Well, like, that's a, that's a, that's, there's well, all sorts of connotations. Yeah, no, for, forget the, like, the, the Carl great Charles reset, Schwab yeah. and uh, his bullshit. Um, I'm thinking more, we talked about we had mass, a massive period of prosperity and... You know, twenty years of uh, economic growth is this essentially our our rebalancing period now? And do these periods tend to match, or can it? And what happened in like five, ten years? Well, we're still in the same fifteen-year funk before we ever got to COVID. Okay. And I, I don't understand why people thought we would shut down the global economy and come out of it better than we came into it. So we were already in a deflationary funk in yeah. tw- by 2019, one that had been extended for almost a dozen years by that point. Then we made it worse. Oh, so they're kicking the can down the road. Not even kicking can, the kicking the can down the road. Everybody confused CPIs for economic recovery. Okay. And like I said, when you look at the supply demand curve, we actually have less economic activity but higher prices, which people think that the economy was red hot. It wasn't. We haven't recovered from 2020, and before 2020, we hadn't recovered from 2008. We're actually ratcheting downward. So if you look at history, are we heading to a 1940s style depression? Well, the, Is that, what are your forties? Wasn't a depression. Forty was the uh, oh thirty thirties. Nineteen thirties. Yeah. I think we've been in a uh, more like an eighteen eighty style depression for the last fifteen years. My podcast co-host Camila Kalinowski called us calls it the silent depression. So ever since August 9th of two thousand seven, we've been in a silent depression. And when you say silent depression, is it because we're getting poorer, but we think we're getting richer? We're getting poorer, but nobody really knows it. <laughs> well, I think people people understand something is not right, but they can't they can't put their finger on it. Which is why people have you know crypto enthusiasm is, is has become what it is because I think intuitively people understand there is something wrong here. Not just in the economy, not just in the finance, but in the monetary system itself. We just don't know what it is because we keep getting bad information. We keep getting bad media signals. We keep getting, you know, the wrong ideas that are that were implanted in our heads from very from the very beginning of economics 101. We seem to have more money, but we don't seem to be saving. <laughs> we don't. We're not doing anything. We seem right? to be richer, but our kids can't afford homes. Yeah, you know, the middle class where is did being, it, having the fuck squeezed out of it. Where did it go? 
I don't know. You tell me. That's why you're <laughs> That's here. What I'm I telling you. Know. What happened was, and we had maybe the illusion of prosperity, especially in the in the in the two thousands, in the twenty first century, and then it all just fell apart, and it's never been put back together. And that's the thing about inequality. As you said before, people who did really well up until 2007, they're still doing really well. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah. However, when you get into these depressions, what happens every time is that, and this is another thing John Maynard Keynes was correct about when he said deflation is by far the worst evil. Okay. Because deflation means who pays for that deflation? Not the rich person, not even the business owner. Workers do. Yeah, workers get the short end of the shaft in the def- any deflationary environment. And what have we seen? Why? To explain why, though. Because what happens is just simply liquidity risks and things like that. Business owners can't afford labor. Right. They can't afford to pay labor what labor demands, and therefore it becomes a sort of a self a, a, vicious, a vicious cycle of self reinforcement. So, employment workers suffer in every deflationary depression. What have we seen over the last fifteen years? In the United States, the labor force participation rate has plummeted. So silent depression, again, the unemployment rate, which doesn't take into account the participation problem, looks terrific. So if we ignore all those millions of workers who left the labor force because there are no jobs, everything looks great. But those millions of people still exist. Yeah. They don't have a job. They've gone 15 years without it. And then the labor force participation fell again in 2020 and still hasn't come back. But there's all these unfilled jobs. You go to restaurants and they're saying, yeah, we've got to reduce service because you know, we can't find staff. You've got these baggage handlers. You've got all these. There's no such thing as a labor shortage. A labor shortage is cured in a second if you pay the market clearing wage. So you mean get rid of minimum wage? Not, I'm not talking about minimum wage. Obviously, businesses are not paying the wage that the market demands to get people out of their homes and, and working again. And people think ah. that's because the government paid them to sit on their couch, but that's not really the case. What is it then? It's, again, John Maynard Keynes' deflationary environment. Companies can't afford to pay workers. Okay. But hold on, but they're advertising jobs. They're advertising jobs, but what are they paying? Below the rate that they need to pay. Ah. It has to be below the market clearing rate, otherwise workers would be in there in a second. But there are, but there are people who could work if they, wouldn't, they weren't receiving money for the government. Those anecdotes are popular, and yeah. they've been used to try to explain why the participation rate remains low, and they've been primarily forwarded, the idea of this great resignation, mm. too. That has, been, that, was, that has been forwarded by the mainstream to essentially try to explain what otherwise would be a deflationary outcome. So because we don't believe, media doesn't believe in this deflationary stuff. This is, oh, the Fed created, mm. Jay Powell sat mm. in 60 Minutes and said, I flooded the world with dollars. So that must be what happened. And everything that doesn't agree with that statement, which is basically everything, we have to find a way to explain it. And so the labor shortage is one way to try to explain low participation rate, even though the participation problem is simply repeating the same thing that we saw in the aftermath of the 2008-2009 Great Recession, because it wasn't a recession. So if you, have to, if you had to get your crystal ball now and say, the next year, next five years, next decade... How does this play out? What's going to happen? In- Don't need a crystal ball. Okay. The markets tell us. Okay. So if you look at, first of all, the yield curve, treasury market, mm-hmm. not good. Something like Eurodollar futures. Eurodollar futures is these banks in the monetary system hedging these massive portfolios. So they're telling you what they perceive as safety and liquidity risks in this marketplace. And the Eurodollar futures market is unbelievably pessimistic right now. 
It is it, the curve is inverted, which means that the market is expecting the Fed to raise rates a little bit more, and then they're going to go down sharply. This year, the probability is that the Fed will stop raising rates this year and start cutting them. So, what does the economy and financial markets look like where ultra hawk Jay Powell with a new 40-year high CPI as of the June data stops hiking rates and starts cutting them? What does the economy and markets look like in that scenario? Well, That's not, what's being priced today. Is that because the Fed think like you and think there isn't monetary inflation and the numbers due to other factors? Yeah, that's part. I mean, part of it is that, uh, I mean, I think the Fed still believes that this is transitory consumer prices, which they're correct, and that they've, they've done these rate hikes and especially gotten aggressive with them for political reasons. So part of it is, the political pressure changes, but why would political pressure change if consumer prices don't come down? Mm-hmm. So if the Fed is going to stop hiking rates and start cutting them at some point in the next six months, eight months, nine months, whatever it is, what does the environment look like either politically or economically or financially? It still doesn't look good. So the markets are hedged against pretty bad scenarios, and there's any number of reasons why including in the monetary system itself, some of the fundamental characteristics of this euro-dollar system, like the supremacy of collateral and the fact that collateral has been a thorn in the side of the monetary system since 2007, and it continues to be today. Well, because there isn't any? There's not enough. Right. And it's another one of these intuitive problems that people have. When you say, what is the best form of collateral? It's government debt. There's not enough collateral. Wait a minute. There's not enough government debt? Are you you really trying to say there's not enough government debt? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So governments issue financial securities, treasuries, and and German bonds and JGBs that are used as collateral, but they're not just used one time. They're repurposed, reused, rehypothecated. So there's essentially, believe it or not, a fractional reserve multiplier of collateral. So the collateral (laughs) stream can expand and contract based on several factors. And what we're seeing over the last really six months is that the collateral multiplier is shrinking, which is not good because that leads to all sorts of deflationary liquidity problems, which you may have noticed in some markets over the last few weeks. So do you think they're going to create more, a massive increase in government debt? No? No, because the government doesn't pay attention to these things, especially Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen (laughs) as Fed chair. That's what, again, when I come back to when I say the Federal Reserve is not a central bank. They don't actually pay attention to the monetary system. But I'm, I, I know it's hard for people to believe, but that's exactly the case. It's, 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 it's a of, dirty little secret there. Has any of this got to do with why, why we hit dollar-euro parity recently, why the dollar is so strong? The dollar goes up. That means there's a shortage of dollars. As we talked about with Turkey and all, some of the, all the others, dollar goes up, that's bad. That means that dollar shortage is becoming a real problem. And the dollar has gone up a lot over the last six months. But so how do you get more dollars in the system? Is that where they print? And then the banks need to create balance sheets. But they're they're actually safe and liquid. And in a safe liquid environment, what do you do? You actually get into the situation that's called backwards elasticity. When you need what money dealers are supposed to do. And this is, this is a basic money fundamental proposition, too. Something I talked about with Robert Breedlove to, to a yeah. certain extent, which was that, you know, elasticity means you have to have people in the marketplace willing to provide money when nobody else will. So if the Eurodollar system isn't providing money, that means nobody else is doing it, too. But there are all sorts of profit incentives that 
under normal circumstances, they would provide money because you could make a lot of money doing it, right? You could create a, a generous amount of uh, September 2019 in the repo market's a perfect example. Repo rates skyrocketed, which if you were a repo dealer, you could have made your entire year's profit in a single day. But the opposite happened, which was the more the repo rate went up, the more the dealers took themselves out of the system because they realized there's too much risk even at a high repo rate. So in other words, in general terms, not just September of 2019, like today we see the dollar skyrocketing because the banking system is saying we could make a lot of money lending to Turkey, but that would be really bad because the return I would get from Turkey still isn't high enough yet to make me want to lend to Turkey. Right. So the higher the, the, the return or the higher the rate being charged in Turkey, the less I want to deal with Turkey because that just means Turkey's more of a risk. So it becomes a backwards elastic situation where the more, e- the more inelastic or the less money there is available, the me- less money there will become available because everybody's pulling back at the same time. You become risk averse based on all of these signals that are telling you risks are high. So the thing to do is accept we're heading into a deflationary recessionary period. How does that itself play out? That's the trillion, quadrillion dollar question, right? How are you preparing for this? Well, I think you look at, again, look at the markets and what they're telling us. So the, the, the odds of a deflationary pulse, that doesn't necessarily, again, doesn't necessarily mean that prices are going to come down in the United States. It means by and large, we'll have deflationary money and then deflationary monetary consequences, which can play out as a deep recession, for example, in the U.S. and maybe deflation, outright deflation of prices elsewhere around the world. But what we're looking at is the markets are telling us that the risks of a severe recession and deflationary monetary uh, episodes are exceedingly high right now. And so what does that actually mean? It's hard to say at this point because it's just kind of starting. But how, how are you preparing? How am I preparing? Yeah, how are you preparing? By being very risk averse. <laughs> okay. So, so it, if you're talking about in terms of investments. Yeah, investments. Where, where we look at, we're looking at being long U.S. treasuries, for example. Yeah. Is one way because in a deflationary environment, as we're seeing with the yield curve inverted today, even though CPIs are high and rate height expectations, the yield curve is upside down. And it's upside down by the most it's been since 2006 and 2007, which is telling you that at some point it's going to pay to own safe and liquid instruments because everybody's going to want to own those same things. Well, look, my business is UK based, but all my uh, sponsorship deals are priced in dollars because the majority of my sponsors are US based. Euro dollar. Well, <laughs> Everything's US yeah, dollar. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and that's been good for me over the last six months. Right. Because the pound's now down to 118. And I remember it when it was two pounds to the dollar. I mean, a while back. But right. even the start of this year, it was 140. And so for every dollar I, I, well, for every, yeah, for every dollar I bill, I'm getting like, an extra pound or two. Well, no, partial. Uh, but I'm, was it I'm getting a pence a, or a, a pence. I'm getting yeah. about. Uh, so I used to get for every dollar I'd get about uh, what was it about seventy one p at the start of the year. Now it's about eighty two. I yeah. think. Yeah. So I'm like making probably an extra ten to twelve percent, thirteen percent. I don't know what the math is, but yeah. But that's been that that has been good. But then my costs when I come out here is getting more expensive. Right. So I'm seeing both sides of that. Okay, I mean, this is obviously a massive curveball. <laughs> we weren't expecting. Well, I think that this entire discussion has been a massive curveball. Yeah, and that's, but, that's but, but there's a lot of logic to it, which is why, I'm, I mean, I don't know about you, Danny, there's a couple of people I want to ask questions. Definitely. I mean, this is, 
exactly what I, how I thought this conversation would go, and I'm really glad it was gone this way because it's it's completely different to what we hear from a lot but of people I, but in Bitcoin. I, I, I think I would rather prepare for a deflationary recession than I would pr- want to prepare for a Weimar Republic hyperinflation. I mean, they're both shit. Well, yeah, because I mean, you're talking about two different extremes. Yeah. The Weimar hyperinflation is an extreme of an extreme. Yeah. Whereas a prolonged, even a prolonged deflationary depression is depression is an extreme. But it just it does feel like that's a reset from the exuberance of a certain period. It could be, yes. Yeah. And I, for one, would kind of like to get out of these de- de- deflationary cycles. And and you know, I have kids too, and I'd like to see them have some of an optimistic future, which is. What is the way to get out of this? Though? Fix the monetary system. How do you fix the monetary yeah, system? Yeah, that's 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 another tough question that I don't think we're going to solve in in, in, a, in a couple couple days of conversation. It's theoretically speaking, ideal circumstances. I believe it's what I said at the beginning, yeah. which is a currency system that is relatively elastic, smartly elastic, that does that avoids both extremes. You don't want it to be too inelastic, and you don't want it to be too elastic, so that you get into a situation like the middle two thousands where it does too much. So a system that can balance in between fixed and um, basically infinite. Hmm. Feels like next time I come to Miami, maybe that's that's what we'll explore. Try and get you back on, uh, Danny. Anything we've not asked you want to ask? The the one thing I've been thinking is if if we you think we've been in this deflationary period since two thousand seven, did you say? How long do you think we can stay in it? Oh, that's uh, look at the Japanese example. So they're in, they're in their it? fourth decade. Fourth decade. Yeah, that started in 1989, 1990. What is, what is that? The impact been on the the yeah the general public and it's a death spiral. It's a death spiral. Yeah, I mean the Japanese have essentially committed cultural and uh, economic suicide. It, there are literally fewer Japanese now, and it, it, everybody <laughs> since everybody simply believes that that's some kind of problem of the Japanese system or the Japanese culture. But when your economy doesn't work and you get pessimistic and you fear for your children. Um, Is this the depopulation thing that's yeah, happening as well? The demographic. Yeah. The Japanese have taken it to an, an absolute extreme because their economy has been for shit, literally for shit, for more than 30 years. And what, just what could or should much. they have done? Should they have accepted the, the pain to allow them to rebuild? No, they should have demanded... Some, um, Actual reforms instead of one QE after another. They're on QE twenty five or twenty six. And this QE at some point you would say yeah, this doesn't seem to be working here. Uh, okay, and and is that? Do you think the the QE is it's essentially a, a symptom of a uh, the way the political system is designed in a cycle? That as we said, those on top seek to remain on top, and yeah. QE is one way to placate the masses a little bit to at least say, hey, we're doing something. You don't know what we're doing. We don't want you to know what we're doing. Don't ask too many questions. Just be happy we're printing money and go about your life and we'll just, just believe that we, we will, we'll take care of it for you. Hmm. And in a rigid society like Japan, that has worked for 30 years, where in other societies like our own or around the world, you end up with, hey, this is not working. The economy's not growing. We're going to find other people to provide us with answers, whether they're Populist right wing, populist left wing, communist, whatever, you have pol- uh, political and social polarization because when an economy does not grow, people's livelihoods are threatened, they look for extremes. Civil unrest, pop- rise of populism. Eventually war. Eventually war. Well, and all of these things we're, we're already there. We're seeing all parts of this in different parts of the world. So, like you said, this yeah. did not show up in 2020. This has been building for 15 years because as you look at all these GD- GDP charts, not just in the US, you can see the same thing in Europe. It grows at one rate. 
We hit 2008, it grows at a very lower, uh, different rate. In some places, you look at Italy, for example. Italy's GDP is, well, in 2019 was about, I think, 5% less than it had been in 2007. Hmm. So they're not even growing at all. Yeah. They're shrinking. So you can't go a decade and a half without economic, legitimate economic growth. You can call it a boom all you want. People realize it's not a boom when their livelihoods, their daily life is threatened. And they start looking for answers. Some of them are productive answers, like cryptocurrencies. I absolutely believe that uh, exploration of digital currencies is a very good thing. Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, and they engineered blockchain technology. Which Bitcoin. Disruptive technology, a revolutionary step in the right direction. You yeah. just need to keep going. I think that it's, it's, it's one step. There's a several more to take. Let me, let me put it out to you. Bitcoin is, uh, could be part of the solution. Yes. The rest of crypto blockchain is probably more like the euro dollar system. Yes, I agree with you. Most digital currencies are crap. Most, yeah. A lot of them are scams. Um, but that's that's how these that's how yeah. technological revolutions go. Yeah. Oh man, this was fascinating. Uh, I uh, I think we're we're going to come back to Miami because we're going to need to do a follow up because <laughs> I, I I need to take this and need to talk to other people. And yes. there's a lot of implications of this. If you're right, uh, I need to talk to the people who's going to say shut the fuck up. He's wrong. I'm going to need to talk to people. Who go oh my god, that's amazing. That's right. That's correct. I just need to like uh, bring it all together. Um, well, like I said, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, all you got to do is do a little bit of research. You can take their word for it. Okay. Well, I I would do both. Uh, Jeff, tell people about your podcast and where to find you. Yeah, I do a podcast called Eurodollar University where we dive into these deep topics. I have a co-host, Emil Kalinowski, another Eurodollar monetary enthusiast. It's at YouTube. Is he here? He's in. Uh, he's actually in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> the irony. It's, yeah, Eurodollar, he's obviously offshore. It has he, to be. He's near the spigot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, he's, he's in one of the banks or, uh, in their offices all the time. So yeah, Eurodollar <laughs> University podcast. It's at his channel, Mil Kalinowski on YouTube, Apple Podcast. Um, I'm at Atlas Financial, registered investment advisory business. You can check us out, portfolioshield.net. Um, we also have a research product that we're launching. Go to marketsinsiderpro.com. Um, I do a column at Real Clear Markets, a column at Epic Times. So I'm usually printing stuff somewhere a couple times a day. As long as it's not money. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. I walked right into that one. <laughs> uh, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, these are my favorite types of shows to make, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I know Danny was really enjoying it. Um, Jeremy? Thumbs up <laughs> from Jeremy. All right, All right great. Man. But listen, take care. Let's, uh, let's do this again soon. All right, thanks, Peter. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing to do is head over to What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. 